The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. My name's Aaron. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Whose ever bright idea it was to have me teach this morning? It's just grossly mistaken, but I am, uh, I am thankful to be here. I'm thankful for you guys coming to be sharing with you in this season. Um, yeah, we're going to have, we're going to have a good morning this morning. I'm excited about what, uh, is in store. Um, typically I oversee kind of the behind the scenes ministries here at Heritage, uh, spreadsheets and finances and boring stuff like that systems. And so, uh, which doesn't normally walk itself up onto the stage. So this morning you're getting the backup to the backup to the backup. So you are in for a treat this morning. No. Um, can I, can I just take a moment and acknowledge, uh, the pastors that God has blessed us with here at Heritage who teach on a week in a week out basis, godly men who rightly divide the word of truth, who are gifted expositors and those that just love Jesus with a a real passion. So I want to thank those guys and man, I'm, I'm in preparation for this. I just am constantly reminded of what a gift it is to our church. So Paul, Jeremy, Mitch, in particular, thank you guys so much. Paul, this morning is in Wisconsin, spending, uh, oh yeah, yeah. This morning, uh, I know Paul's tuning in online. Good morning, Paul. Um, He's in Wisconsin with his mom, uh, with the rest of his family, with some uh, much-needed time off uh, for a few days. He'll be back in the middle of this week. Jeremy is actually teaching over in Philippi in Grants Pass today, uh, so we're all, always love when we're able to get over there and support Sam at Philippi. And then Mitch leading worship for us this morning. Um, you know, in, in all seriousness, though, all jokes aside, uh, Paul specifically asked me to teach this first sermon in the sermon series that we're going through during this Christmas season, um, specifically because I oversee the missions an outreach pillar here at Heritage. So for those of you that have been around for a while, we have a strategic plan. We've got several pillars that, um, that we've identified, uh, like what we're doing right here, our Sunday morning gathering. We have uh, our family and children's ministry as being a pillar of Heritage. We have discipleship, and we have missions and outreach. We see this ministry as an essential part of what we're called to do as believers and what we're called to do as a church Uh, according to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. However, to do this effectively, we need to have a proper understanding of God's heart for mankind and the amazing restorative plan he's put in place. We need to know what the gospel is, ultimately so that we know what we are inviting people into. So in light of the Christmas season, for the next four weeks, we're going to be going through a series titled Giving the Greatest Gift, with a focus on the gospel through personal evangelism, as we remember the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The sermon is a preamble, if you will, as we look to the birth narrative of Jesus this morning as a backdrop for personal evangelism, because God's plan for restoration is for all things. His offer for salvation is for all people. The same heart that compelled the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, to leave the comforts of heaven, submitting to the will of the Father, to come to earth in the form of a man, 
only to be killed a criminal's death for one purpose and one purpose only, to give the greatest gift that humankind could ever receive. But I don't want to spoil the whole sermon, so will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your house. Lord, to worship, to set our ideas of what life should be aside, to ascribe value and praise to the one who is worthy. Holy Spirit, this morning I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people, Lord, just the same way that you have moved in my heart these last couple of weeks as I've been meditating on this text. God, would you do a work in us this morning? Would you help us to see your restorative plan woven throughout history, coming to a crescendo in the embodiment of Jesus as an infant? God, we desire to be more like you. Would you do that in us this morning? Amen. If there's one point that I'm hoping that you guys are going to take away this morning, it's this. Is that God's plan for restoration is for all things. God's offer salvation for salvation is for all people. God's plan for restoration is for all things. And God's offer of salvation is for all people. The free will of humankind that God allowed at the beginning of creation is what allowed sin to ultimately enter the earth, right? It broke the perfection of creation. And since that time, God in his grace has orchestrated a plan for restoration that demonstrates his love for the fallen world, for you, for me, and for every person that has been and ever will be. That is the kind of God that we serve, you guys. He's not an angry God. He's not a spiteful God. He's not disappointed. He's a God that desires relationship with humankind, those that have been made in his image. And the best part is he didn't leave us to figure it out on our own. Even though the offense of sin was directed at him in the garden, he showed mercy to us by putting a plan of restoration in place, including the sending of his own son to receive the penalty of the offense of sin on our behalf. That is the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel and the greatest gift we can offer to those without hope. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. So you guys can feel free to turn there. We're going to be in verses 21 through 39. As the baby Jesus is offered to the Lord in the temple a short time after his birth. We'll see God's restorative plan is already being anticipated by a select few. A remnant, if you will, of God's chosen people, Israel. We'll look at Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents. And the two people in the temple in Jerusalem, Simeon and Anna, these four people have been anxiously awaiting the promise of salvation for a very, very long time. They've been anxiously awaiting it. I can remember probably the thing that I was anticipating with great uh, uh, excitement was my honeymoon. Oh, come on, you guys. Jeez. Come on. No. No. My honeymoon, because my wife and I, we met when we were really young. And we dated for seven and a half years before we got married. And it was, it was wonderful. We were super excited. Um, we were just really young when we, when we got together. And so um, I wanted to take my new bride. I wanted to just whisk her away, right? I wanted to take her on this amazing vacation. And so I worked for the entire summer 
worked really hard. I tried to find a good deal. I, I really wanted to take her to this beautiful, romantic, serene. Oh, I just thought, man, I want to go to the South Pacific, right? But I couldn't afford any of the nice islands in the South Pacific. So we ended up going to this very small, very modest, and I won't even say the name because I don't want to embarrass it. Um, but we went to this, this island, and we got there just after being married, and I'm just, I'm just pumped. I'm like, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm just so anxiously awaiting this time to just enjoy each other, to be on our honeymoon, to have adventure, to have fun. And we walk up to the front desk, and they say, oh, you, I'm sorry, you can't check in. Your, your suite won't be ready for another six hours. I'm like, great, we'll just hang out on the beach with our luggage. So we, we make our way down to the sand. Literally, we, they wouldn't even let us leave our bags there. We had to take them on into the sand. And we come over the crest of the, of the sand, and we look out, and I'm, I've got this anticipation built up, right? Like, it's going to be awesome. It's just, just sand as far as you can see, crystal clear water. And we literally come over, and the tide is out. And there's kelp and seaweed and rocks and junk, like trash, all right there. So we come across here, and I, I tell you what, I think I was just, I was in a vulnerable place. I just broke down and wept like a baby. <laughs> and my wife, recently betrothed to me, she looks over at me like, what is happening? Sometimes our anticipations, right, can get the better of us. We have these high expectations for what we, we think things will look like, what they'll be like, and many times they're disappointing. Our story today is filled with anticipation of the coming Savior, but unlike my story, it won't be a disappointment. In the latter half of Luke 2, we have four members of the remnant of Israel that are anxiously awaiting the promised Messiah and that testify that the restorative plan of God is in motion. And in fact, it's been in motion throughout history to bring about this plan. If we think back to the saints of the Old Testament, we remember some of these, like Noah, that God used to preserve God's family through the flood. Think of Joseph, who saved the nation of Israel by bringing them to Egypt in the midst of a severe famine. He used Moses and Joshua to bring them, God's people, into the land of promise. He even used Cyrus the Great in the time of the Persian conquest to uh, overtake Babylon and, and let God's people return to their homeland. I say all that to say this. God has a restorative plan for humanity. He has a restorative plan for the world, and he has a restorative plan for his kingdom. We'll look at this plan this morning through the lens of four people who are anxiously awaiting the promise to be fulfilled this remnant, being a small group of Israel that were faithfully and patiently trusting God's promises, that they're true and they can be trusted. So let's read Luke chapter 2, 21 through 39 together. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he, called Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the, revolution, for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, living, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Luke 2, 21 through 39 can be outlined as follows. Verses 21 through 24, we see Joseph and Mary, and they demonstrate commitment to the law of the Lord. Verses 25 through 33, we see Simeon. He identifies the coming of the Messiah to the world. And then verses 36 through 38, Anna declares the consolation of Jerusalem to the remnant. Now, this is really difficult for us to comprehend the full magnitude of the significance of this moment in the latter half of Luke 2. Several thousand years have progressed since the time of the fall of creation, the promise that a Messiah would come, and Jesus arriving at the scene. It's kind of like starting a movie from the middle. If we were to watch The Lord of the Rings together, the, three, the trilogy, the three movies, the theatrical versions... It's about nine hours long, right? Not including The Hobbit for you geeks out there. Anyway, about nine hours. It would be as if we were jumping into that story, a very long story, right around hour seven of nine. The main storyline is already developed. The villain is winning. There is no hope, only despair. And then there's a glimmer of hope. A turning of the tide, if you will. That's the scene that we stumble into this morning. As my younger daughters would say, we're coming in hot to this promise that has taken a long time to be fulfilled. As we come careening into this scene today, the long-awaited Messiah has come. Salvation has arrived. We see God's plan unfolding through the sending of his son Jesus, and it's validated by four witnesses. Four witnesses that are part of the remnant, those that were anxiously awaiting the coming of the Messiah. So first, verses 21 through 24, Mary and Joseph demonstrate commitment to the law of the Lord. Jesus' family believed God's redemptive plan so much that they were willingly submitted 
to God in obedience. Obedient to the law at a great price to themselves. The submission is shown primarily through uh, two different acts, the circumcision and naming and the purification and presenting. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. They held off on naming Jesus, which means Savior, by the way. Even though Mary and Joseph were, were contacted, Mary was contacted uh, by Gabriel, the angel, right? In Luke chapter 1, verses 31, before he was even conceived. So Mary and Joseph already knew the name of the baby that would be the Savior, but they followed the rituals outlined according to the law of the Lord. Each of these acts would be normal, everyday occurrences according to the law, right? Luke presents Jesus' family as obedient to the Lord and to their heritage. He explains what they do, but not just what they do, but why they do it. They submitted to the Lord because they were expectant and unwavering supporters of God's redemptive plan. As we look back to the Old Testament in Isaiah, he prophesied of what was to come. In Isaiah 7, verses 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Later in chapter 9, he goes on to say that the child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, um, in sermon development, or maybe two weeks ago now, Kathy, our women's ministry director and, and mother of three boys, astutely pointed out that the, uh, the amount of commitment that Mary and Joseph showed was really admirable, right? From Bethlehem to Jerusalem, it's about five miles, and it's five miles uphill, on foot, likely in the heat, just eight days after Jesus was born. That's a commitment, to upholding the law of the Lord. And it was. As a result, they were, they were heralded as righteous. Just like Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents in Luke 1.6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. You see, their faithful submission to the will of God was a reflection of their commitment to God because they believed that the Savior had come. So, Joseph and Mary, they demonstrate this commitment to the law of the Lord as an act of submission to God's restorative plan. Verses 25 through 33, we see Simeon identifies the coming of the Messiah to the world. An easy way to divide out uh, Simeon's portion of this narrative is verses 25 through 27, which is Simeon's character. In verses 28 to 33, we see Simeon's blessing. And then verses 34 through 35, we see Simeon's warning. I want to point out a few things about Simeon. We know very little about him. This is the only place in Scripture where he's mentioned. Um, but what we do know is that he walked closely with God. If I were to summarize Simeon's character, he was a faithful and expectant believer in God's redemptive plan. And secondly, he was filled and led by the Holy Spirit. I love the active role of the Holy Spirit here with Simeon. If I had three verses in the Bible that were dedicated to describing me, man, I would hope that it would read like this. I know it wouldn't, but 
something to ascribe to. He had a focus on the Holy Spirit's active role in his life. We see a close connection. The Holy Spirit's coming upon Simeon provided him with an unusual privilege of knowing that he would see Jesus during his lifetime. Can you imagine what that would have been like? That amount of anticipation and expectation? It means that every day that you get older is one day closer to when Jesus, the Messiah, would arrive. I mean, I can't think of anything that would keep me motivated to live for him and to be expectant towards him. Constant reminder that Simeon's days were numbered and therefore so were the days before the Messiah would come. Lastly, the Holy Spirit led him into the temple, as we see in the text. Simeon wasn't relying on a past experience with the Holy Spirit. He was actively listening and being led by the Holy Spirit. This week, Pastor Mitch jokingly you know, said, can you imagine how many times Simeon would have picked up children in the temple, just hoping that they were Jesus? Like, oh, oh, nope, nope, nope. You kind of hold them up like the Lion King, right? Nope. Ah. Especially every day that he woke up and his, his knees hurt, right? Oh, his back just is starting to give out. Every one of those aches and pains was a rem- reminder that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. So, quite contrary to the picking up all the kids in the temple, Simeon is led by the Holy Spirit where that day he would come face to face with the Savior. Before we discuss Simeon's blessing in verses 28 through 33, uh, I'd like to just stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later, okay? So picking up in verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many, and he would face opposition. The the euphoria, if you will, that Mary and Joseph were experiencing in that moment of receiving a blessing for their child is very short-lived. As Simeon directs his attention directly at Mary, and he speaks some truth that her son was going to be set apart, that he'd be at the center of controversy Many people would oppose Jesus during his earthly ministry, especially even within their own people. For Mary, probably was friends, family, his neighbors right across the street, whispers that, that may have happened. One commentator wrote that it would appear that the foretelling of Jesus' opposition is carefully in, intended to prepare Mary for the heartache of seeing her son opposed and ultimate death. So the rejection of him as Christ, the the mocking, the cursing, all culminating to the crucifixion, crucifixion, people then and people now still reject Jesus as the Son of God. So Simeon issues a warning. It's the first negative kind of connotation in the book of Luke. It's, It's grim, right? in light of this excitement that has been experienced so far, right? The the, the heavens have opened in chapter 1, or at the beginning of chapter 2 in Luke. It's been excitement. It's been anticipation. 
realized all of a sudden there's this this slight turn. It's not all going to be easy. In verses 36 through 38, we see Anna. She declares the consolation of Jerusalem to the remnant. Anna is a seasoned saint. Luke gives very specific details to her age. Now, I was trained at a very early age that you don't ask a woman how old she is. If you do, likely one of three things will happen. You get slapped upside the head, right? You might get a look that you don't want to get, or you might get an untruthful answer. Those are really the three options that I see, if you're that specific. Um, However, Luke here, he provides these details not as a dig, right? He provides it as a testimony to Anna's commitment and faithfulness to God in worship, in fasting, and in prayer. It's an awesome testimony. I'm turning 40 this next year. I know. I look much older than 40. You didn't have to say it, Mitch. Gosh. Anyway, I'm turning 40 this next year. And as I think every time we approach those, those milestones, those decade milestones, right, um, we start kind of reassessing, man, what, is, what does life look like? What was that anticipation, expectation, and, and where are we right now? And I, I want to avoid this next year of just looking at, you know, how to avoid an identity crisis, right? I don't want to focus on checking items off of my bucket list. I have so much respect for the seasoned saints who faithfully, day in and day out, walk a life worthy of the calling of God. Many of you out here in this room today, I have immense amount of respect for you as saints in your marriages, in your workplace, in the way that you share the gospel, in the way that you live life together, those are the things that matter. Those are the things that are important. As Anna enters the scene of Simeon's blessing, she does two things. She gives thanks to God, and she proclaims his coming. Green, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says this about Simeon and Anna. Luke establishes the credibility of these two witnesses. Note their exemplary piety their anticipation of redemption, and their response of praise to God. Luke has thus portrayed Simeon and Anna as male-female counterparts who represent the best of expectant Israel and testify to the central place Jesus already occupies in God's redemptive plan. As we focus for the next four weeks on the gospel, on the good news, we should be asking ourselves, what is, what is God's heart in all of this? We look back with me to Simeon's blessing in verses 28 to 33. He took him up in his arms, being Jesus, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now notice here, Simeon doesn't know how salvation was ultimately going to be fulfilled, right? All he does is see this small, innocent, helpless child. And he says, God, my eyes have seen your salvation. He didn't know the details. 
He didn't know how that was going to play out, but what he did know was salvation when he saw it. He believed that salvation was embodied in the baby Jesus. That's all he needed to see. Not salvation realized, salvation revealed in an infant. So Simeon understood that salvation for Israel was more than just a national deliverance from an oppressive Roman rule. He understood that Jesus came not to save the people from their enemies, but to save them from their sins. He says, I've seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. How many people? All. All people. John 3.16, which we all know and love, right? Kids can repeat it back to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of God's people. God's plan for restoration is for all things. God offers salvation to all people. This would have been so countercultural in that time. Now, salvation was expected for Israel. They had been being told for a very long time that they would see salvation, that, they would, that a new kingdom would be built, that they would no longer be under the oppressive rule of whatever nation it was that was over them. Within the Jewish community, they would not have expected that light would be brought to the Gentiles, even though it is said over and over and over again. In the New Testament, in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, it says, For in Christ Jesus you all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as ransom for all. This is the testimony. God's plan for restoration is for all things. God's offer of salvation is offered to all people if we will just accept it. I want to close by asking you guys three questions. The first is this. Does your heart mirror the same desire for salvation for all people? Asked a different way, does your heart reflect God's heart? I think we know the right answer to that, right? It needs to be yes. Sometimes it's no. And if I'm being really honest, even though my heart is, says, yes, God, I, I want all to come to a saving knowledge of you, and many times my actions do not support that same desire. I think we can all relate to that. If that's the case, then maybe we need to reevaluate our priorities based on what God values. God's plan for restoration is for all things. He demonstrated this by sending his own son to pay the penalty for our sin. That's the ultimate price. I don't know if any of you guys have done this before, but I've I've, I've tried to place myself, having had a son now, his name is Jacob, he's 12 years old. Having a son, I've put myself in God's shoes, if you will, and I've, I've said, Do I, could, I, could I sacrifice? Could I offer my son 
for the saving of many? I don't think so. Thankfully, God hasn't asked that of me. Thank you, Lord. But what do we sacrifice for the lost? For those who don't have a hope. For those that haven't experienced the saving power of the gospel. This last Thursday at our staff meeting, we dedicated that entire time that we would meet together to worship, to pray, to pray specifically over this service, to pray over this series, to pray over this season, that God would be stirring something in not just your guys' hearts, but in our hearts as well, the leadership. We worship and we prayed, and I, I, felt, I felt conviction from the Holy Spirit that a lot of times I'm inconvenienced by those that need Jesus. And that is ugly. So many times I'm so busy with the things of the Lord that when somebody actually needs the Lord, I feel inconvenienced by it. It's terrible. It's selfish. That's one thing that God is doing in my heart even now. Second question. How's your testimony before others? God used the testimony of the four people here in our story They demonstrated a submission to the law of the Lord. They were led by the Holy Spirit and they lived lives of worship. I'd encourage you to take a critical look at your life, at your testimony, at your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your social circles, on your social media accounts, the time that you spend alone. Does your testimony scream of life changing encounter with the Son of God? Does, your, does it support the gospel or does it stifle the gospel? Because my friends, our actions, the lives that we live speak louder than words. Do you submit to God's will? Are you committed to his plan for restoration like Mary and Joseph? Are you actively being led by the Holy Spirit in anticipation of the salvation to come like Simeon? Are you prepared to worship and proclaim the Savior has come like Anna did? The way these four examples lived out their lives mattered. So maybe it should for us too. Third, will you commit to pray with us? In this season, during this series, how might God be working in your heart, in my heart, for those that have no hope? and could really use the good news of the gospel. Some of you recall back in September, we had several messages that focused on discipleship. God's been actively moving in the hearts of the leadership here in Heritage to have a a more narrow focus as a church on disciples making disciples. Those that have faith in Jesus, those that are growing in the likeness of Jesus, and those that are leading others to follow Jesus. On September 5th, you may remember, Jeremy Neff taught a message on discipleship entitled Gathering and Gifted to Grow. You may recall Jeremy rolled out a discipleship assessment survey um, with the purposes of identifying personal growth areas as it relates to discipleship. Does this, uh, does this chart look familiar to you guys? Abiding as a disciple in eight different kind of areas. 
not designed to be um, condemning, but designed to be really areas for, for growth. Where is it as a disciple of Christ that, that I am weak in? Where maybe do I need to ask God for help in? I need to confess to you guys that I took this survey several times over the course of several weeks after, after this was presented, and I've taken it quite a few times since that time. The area of my life that needs the most improvement was the area of missional lifestyle. Boy, that's ironic. Here I am tasked with leading missions and outreach for our church to stand up in front of you and teach on missions and outreach when I consistently rated my heart before the Lord as being low in this area. These are the, these are the questions uh, within missional lifestyle that, uh, that I want to go through. Number one, do I see my life, location, resources, relationships as being purposed by God and to reach the people in my world with the gospel? Do my day-to-day disciplines, behaviors, and intentions demonstrate my desire to lead others to Christ? Does my prayer life reflect God's heart to see others know Christ? Am I able to communicate the gospel to others with ease because it's something I share regularly? Friends, this is an area that God is currently working on my heart in. It's not perfected, I can guarantee it, but I can say that God is faithfully working on my heart to make it more like his in this area. It can be a real challenge sometimes in ministry because we're so busy with the things of ministry of the Lord that sometimes we forget. My heart needs to be one that is aligned with Christ's. God's plan for restoration is for all things. God offers salvation for all people. So, Will you be praying with us this morning with your announcements? You should have gotten, let us pray. These are prayer prompts. This Thursday at 7 p.m., we're just going to ask you to join us in prayer throughout our valley. We're going to pray for those that don't have the hope of the gospel. We're going to pray for ourselves that God would give us a heart that is more like his heart. We're going to pray that God would be moving and working amidst our church in a way that would be honoring to God as we seek to further the mission of the church. So December 2nd, Thursday, we're going to send out a couple of notices via email. If you have our app, you'll see a notice get pushed through there. We're just going to ask, wherever you are, if you are driving through town, pray at 7. If you are sitting in your living room, Pray for your home in that time. If you are walking the dog through your neighborhood, pray for your neighborhood. Pray for our valley. Pray for our church. Let's pray for those that don't have the hope of the gospel in this season. Let's pray. Most holy God, we come before you this morning with thanksgiving. We are thankful that you, in your great grace, have provided a way for salvation for all people. God, you have always had your chosen people, but you have opened up your family as adopted sons and daughters to come 
to call upon your name, to accept you as our Savior and be saved from our sins. Jesus, you provided a way, and we're so grateful. This morning, God, would you give heritage? Would you give each of these people, would you give me,